You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, unless you have been living under a cultural rock for the past month, you have witnessed uh, one of the most epic media spectacles of the year. And I am not talking about A&M's upset over number one Alabama. Gig them. Yes. Uh, as incredible as that was, I am talking about the 73rd annual Met Gala. Mm. Okay, okay, I hear you. Uh, if you don't know what that is, it is a fundraiser. It's a modest fundraiser for, uh, for the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It takes place in New York City. It's been going on since the 40s. Uh, and uh, it's a pretty popular little thing. Uh, if you want to get in on this, good news. Found out ticket prices for this upcoming year are 30000 a pop. So you might want to get on that because they go, people. They go. So, uh, and, uh, you know, if, if you don't know much about it, it really is. It's a, it's a, it's a modest event for modest folks. Uh, let, me, let me show you a little bit of what I mean. I got some uh, photos here from the, the uh, 2021 one. Here we go. Uh, up first, we got... ASAP Rocky, my man ASAP, rocking uh, what can only be described as uh, my grandmother's quilt, I guess. That is, that is what's happening there with Rihanna. Uh, who else we got? We got, um, there he is, Lil Nas, Lil Nas X. Mm. Keeping, it, keeping it on the down low with a king's robe. But is that, is that really all you got for us, Nas? Is that all that? Oh, no, you don't. No, he didn't. He's wearing gold armor. Yep, I was actually gonna wear that this Sunday, but I was showing the picture, I thought it'd be weird. So we didn't do that. Uh, and my personal favorite, uh, Miss Kim K, uh, going full Dementor on us. So that's a thing that happens at the Met Gala. So uh, now I don't know much, uh, you can lose that by the way, thank you. Um, I don't know much, but I know this. I know what those people were not thinking when they were waking up the morning of the Matt Gala. They were not thinking, man, I just care so much about fundraisers. I'm pretty sure they were thinking, where's my Dementor costume, right? I, th I think that's probably what was on their mind because even though it was a fundraiser, ain't nobody goes to that fundraiser to raise funds. You know what I mean? They go to raise eyebrows, really. That's, that's why they are there to raise eyebrows. Now, why am I mentioning this weird thing to you? Well, because, friends, the Met Gala actually allows us to ask the most existential, deep question in all the world. Thank you, Met Gala. Do you know what it is? It's this. What that is doing is platforming this question for you and me this morning. Were you created to see or be seen? That's the question that I, I want us to ask this morning. Were you create, were you made to see something or to be seen by someone? That's the question that we're gonna be uh, asking this morning. And that question, when you answer it, will really determine everything for you downstream in your life. It will determine how you treat people, how you interact with, how you interact with God. Whether or not you answer that question, I was made to see or I was made to be seen. Now, this is, uh, we're answering that question because this question gets at the heart of the fourth of the four G's that we've been doing in our form series. So if you've been with us, you know we're in this series where we are uh, 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 going through, the beginning of it is the sort of theological underpinnings of how we are formed into the image of Jesus. And we've, we've 
put them in four different buckets, four Gs, four attributes of who God is, his character that we're seeing, deriving promises from, and then we're holding on to those, and we're saying, if we hold on to those things, those are the things, those are the mechanisms that the Holy Spirit uses to change us into the image of Jesus. So we looked at uh, three of them so far. We looked at God is great for us in the gospel, meaning God is sovereign. He's in control. He's over everything. So, so I don't have to live a panicked, uh, controlling life because my God has the whole world in his hands. I don't, I don't have to panic. I, I, I don't have to be in control. We talked about God being good for us, right? So th that's like saying God is satisfying for us. So I don't have to live constantly trying to be satisfied in other things. If you want satisfaction for the deepest parts of your heart, you go to the Lord Jesus. He is bread for us. He's a satisfaction. God is good. We looked at God being gracious for us a couple weeks ago. So that means that in the, at the very core of who God is, God is gracious. He's forgiving. He's inclined to pardon, and he does it at the cross. And so all of us who are in Christ, there at the foot of the cross, we experience pardon and grace and forgiveness from him. So we don't have to live and work for his approval. We already have it in the person of Jesus. We, we see the attributes of God, we pull these promises down, and we live from that, and we're formed. And today, we're, we're ending our four parts of this front uh, part of the series. The fourth G is this. We're asking the question again, who is God? And our answer today, our fourth and final answer is this. God is glorious. God is glorious. Who is God? God is glorious. Now, I got to be careful when I say that because when I say that, that word is, uh, it's kind of a, it's a junk drawer word, isn't it? I mean, it means everything. It means nothing. You can say in the same breath, kids, grandma went to glory today. And also, this hot dog is glorious, right? It's weird that you can say that together and we're using the same Word It means all sorts of things to us. And it's a very Christian-y word, right? You say, we say it a lot in church. We want to glorify God or the glory of God. What do we mean when we say that? Well, it's actually an incredibly rich, robust word in Scripture. In the Hebrew, the, the, the Hebrew word for it is kavod. And this word kavod carries so much meaning in it. Uh, it's translated glory a lot in the Old Testament, but that same exact word is also translated, interestingly, Heavy, fat, weighty. Yeah, that's funny, isn't it? Uh, it it's, it's translated as substantive, weighty. Now, what, what does that mean? What does that mean about our word glory? It essentially means this, that uh, what we are saying when we're saying glory uh, uh, or talking about glory is we are saying whatever it is that we're talking about, that object has weight to it. It, it has significance, substance, it, it matters. It's, a, it's not something to be taken lightly. We treat it with the proper weight, do it. And this actually shouldn't sound very foreign to us. We talk like this in our own modern English culture. Like if, if a friend comes up to you and they share something with you that's really troubling them or really significant to them, or, or maybe you're in class and you learn something that's uh, super profound, what might you say at the end of both of those encounters? You might say something like this, man, that was really heavy, right? It's heavy. And that's getting at the essence of what we mean by this word, glory or glorious, that, there, that whatever is glorious is something that has weight. It has to be reckoned with. I, you, you, it's, it's not light and fluffy. It, it has substance. It is glorious. So when we say then something like God is glorious, what are we saying? Well, essentially what we're saying is this, that God 
is the most significant, the most substantive, the, the, the most weighty being in the universe, that his commands and his decrees and his opinions about things and his preferences and what he cares about and what he wants, those things carry more weight to me personally than any other person's command or wants or preferences, that he has weight in my life. God is glorious. That's what we are saying when we say that phrase. And interestingly, what the Bible teaches is that the very purpose of your existence, the reason that you are alive today is for this. What do I mean? The Bible will teach us over and over and over again that the reason that you are on planet Earth is to see the significance, weight, substantiveness, glory of God, to savor it, and then to promote it to the world. That's why we're made. Let me just give you a couple examples. We'll go Old Testament, New Testament. Old Testament, Isaiah 43, you've probably heard this passage before, and verse five says this, fear not, it's God talking to Israel, fear not, for I'm with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring the sons from afar and the daughters from the ends of the earth. Verse seven, everyone who is called by my name, listen, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Why were you made? Well, what did the text say? You were made for the glory of God. You exist to see and savor and promote his importance in the world. That's where you're made. New Testament, we talked about this uh, a handful of months ago when we were studying Colossians. Remember Colossians 1.16? For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him, and what does the text say? For him. Why did Jesus Christ make you? Paul tells us in Colossians 1, he made you for himself. You exist. Have you ever wondered what the meaning of life is, why you're here on earth? You exist for the glory of Jesus Christ. You exist to see the important substantiveness, significance of him, to love it, and then to promote it in the world. That's why you're here. That is why we are on earth. In other words, God's answer to the question, are people made to see or be seen? His answer to the question is, you were made to see. You were made to see. That's why you're here. And so when we say things like, we glorify God, or we want to glorify God. What we mean is that we, we see his glory, his importance, his weightiness, and then we bend our whole lives in conformity to what we see there. We wanna glorify God, that's what glorifying God means. Now, nothing I just said is confusing. I feel like it, it's explained pretty well, but the data of what you just heard, I feel like all of us in this room could say, I get what you're saying. You, you might have actually come in with some knowledge about glory and glory in God and, and those types of things, and you feel pretty good about it. So the issue this morning is not, can we understand the data of that? Our brains get it. It's our hearts that are so jacked up. My brain gets this, but there is a part of me that rebels against this news. And if you are honest, and my goodness, let's be honest this morning, all of us, in, in differing ways, our hearts rebel against this news. We don't want to just see. If we're honest, we want to be seen. 
I mean, I feel this so much. I asked Rodney to preach this sermon. I, have, I didn't ask him for any other sermon but this one, just so that, you know, if anyone's going to sort of punch me in the face, it'd be myself for 45 minutes. So I'm just, I need to hear this really badly. Uh, I'll just give you one example of a million in, in my life. Uh, let's see. So I remember uh, one, of the, one of the moments where I was confronted with uh, my desire for glory over the glory of God. Uh, see, I'm on tour. I'm in my 20s. Uh, I just made uh, an album. It came out. The, the single had just released, so we're sending that to radio, and it's doing good on radio. It's moving up the charts. Those kind of things are happening. I'm feeling great. Think, things are good. I mean, the, the, this is what should be happening if you're doing this as a career, and I should be feeling great, except uh, I had a buddy at that time uh, who uh, we kind of came from the same space in Houston. It's a guy you probably know. His name's Brandon Heath. Heard of that name? Christian artist. So Brandon Heath, uh, uh, we both came from Houston. We kind of grew up in the music scene together a little bit. And, and that like, same month, Brandon releases his song. So my song's out, his song's out. And his song was a little song called Give Me Your Eyes. You remember that song? Give me your eyes for just one second. Give me your eyes. Okay. It's a great song. It's a good song. Uh, it, it really is. It's, it's fun. It's, it feels good. And, and it glorifies God. It's a great song. And that song blew up, y'all. If you, if you follow Christian music at all, I mean, it was top of all the charts. I mean, it probably made him ten zillion dollars. It was awesome. It was an awesome day. If you're Brandon Heath, mm. but I wasn't, and I should have been happy for my friend. But all I could think was, I'll give you your eyes <laughs> on, on a platter, right? I, I couldn't take it. I, my stomach was in knots about, I actually haven't told Brandon. Brandon, if you're watching, I, dude, I love you. I'm sorry. I got over it. Uh, but it was so hard for me, so hard for me. And I remember at that time, I'm reading this book. Uh, it's a book called The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. Uh, don't read it. It will ruin your life. I was reading it, and I read a, a, a line. Uh, it was a sentence of a prayer he prayed at the end of one of his chapters, and it completely assaulted and ruined me. Uh, and I don't have to read out here. I'll just quote it for you. It's, it's painted on the wall of my office. Here's, in the middle of that, here, here's what I read in this book, his prayer. Be thou exalted over my reputation. Make me ambitious to please thee even if as a result, I must sink into obscurity and my name be forgotten as a dream. And that sentence haunted me because I hated every phrase in it. Be thou exalted over my, let me sink into obscurity. I, let me be forgotten as a dream. That's exactly the opposite of what I want. Now, this wasn't what I said I wanted, but it's what I discovered my heart really wanted. And I was doing the Christian thing, right? Writing Christian songs, playing Christian concerts. But at the end of the day, I was not doing it for the glory of God. I was doing it for the glory of Jimmy. I was a glory glutton. I couldn't I had no ambition to see. I wanted to be seen. And it was ruining me. It was, it was undoing me. God exposed me that I didn't want to see glory. I wanted to be seen as glorious. Now, you go, well, Jimmy, that's, 
this stinks for you, bro, but that's your problem. I'm not on tour. Like, that's not something I'm confronted with a lot, like radio single. That's not my thing. It's like, well, good news for you. Uh, you can be a train wreck even not on tour. So um, this, this is great. This will show up in your life and does, I guarantee it, all the time. It doesn't just have to be in, in random weird circumstances like mine. Can, can you see this in your life? This really is everywhere. Can you see, I, I wonder if you can see it in how you engage with social media. Can you see it in how much you care, how many likes you get? And how many times, maybe even this morning, you went back to check again, again? Another person, maybe? Another person? Him? Her? Can you see it in how impossible it feels sometimes not to get the last word in an argument? So you can be victorious and right and correct eternally, right? And everyone can know. Can you see it? in your business ventures, any business folks out there, how important it is for you to make it. I've got this thing, I've got to get it off the ground. It's got to be just, it's got to be big and it's got to be epic and it's got to, it's got to matter. Can you see it in the way you're tempted to bend the rules to get those numbers up, to get on top? You see that in you? Can, can you see it in how sad you are that you're not as important as some of your friends? Why does she always get asked out? Why, 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 am I not, you're, why am I not at that party? You ever been on social media? You're like, wait, they're all there? Did, was that, did that email go to my Juno account? Like, how did I not get invited to that party? I don't get it, right? And your insides twist. You see that in you? Can you see that? Can you see it and how shattered or angry you get when the least bit of critique or criticism comes your way from a friend or a colleague or a parent or a kid? And how, how, how angry, you just want to fight back. You're here, or you just get so in your feels, right? And you're just all here all day, just crying your little tears, right? Because you cannot stomach that you could be wrong or people would think ill of you. You can't stomach it. Can you see it? Can you see it in your desire for a perfect body? Perfect hair, perfect face, we gotta have everything. It's gotta be, gotta put a filter on all my pictures so I look like an angel, right? Can you see it in how scared you feel to ever share the gospel of Jesus with anyone? Because what if they don't like me at the end of it? What if I lose face? What if I become that guy in my school, at my job? I don't want to be that guy. This is what life is like when we are more interested in being seen than seeing. And it's killing us. It's killing us. And there is only one cure. That's the hope. There is a cure, but there's only one of them. We have to see something brighter than ourselves. We have to see a vision of Jesus that can outstrip our vision of ourselves. That's really the only solution. Until I get my eyes on something bigger and brighter and weightier than me, it will always be me. And so that's what we're gonna do this morning. For the whole rest of the morning, we're just gonna, 
we're just going to gaze at Jesus. We're going to see a vision of him, this glorious God, and we're just going to make some applications, and then we're going to be done. So if you have your Bible, get it with me. We're in Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to start us in verse 10. And while you're turning there in Revelation 1, uh, some context. Uh, John, the apostle of Jesus, is banished, exiled to the island of Patmos. He's there uh, at the moment writing this. Uh, he's there for being a Christian, being faithful to the gospel of Jesus. And here he is on this island, and he's writing. And uh, verse 10 says this uh, from the pen of John. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So again, he's on this island. He's all by himself right here uh, in exile on Patmos. And he says it was the Lord's day. So we know that means it's Sunday. The Lord's day uh, was the day that Jesus uh, rose from the grave. So the Lord's day is Sunday. He's there Sunday. And he have, he's having a quiet time with God. That's what he's doing right now. He's having a little house church by himself out here on the island. Patmos, little waves little coming in. I don't know, picture it. You got to see it. You got to see it in your head. A little sand on the shore, a little seagull coming across. I don't know if Patmos has seagulls, but maybe, right? There's the scene. He's just right here, right? And he says, I was in the spirit. Now, commentators debate over what that means. What does it mean that he was in the spirit? But here, here's basically what it means. He's in the zone, right? He's caught up with the Lord. Like he's, it's Devo time, right? He's got his no-foam latte there. He's got his highlighter pens. Shane and Shane's playing in the background. Like it's like, it is a moment that he's having with Jesus right here, Right? And before he sees a thing, he hears a thing. And it comes from behind him. And the, and the only way he can put words to, what he, the, to the brightness and piercingness and volume of this thing is to say it was like the, the, the screeching, piercing clarity of a trumpet coming at him, right? Just imagine, you just imagine, you're just, you're just there in your living room with your little Beth Moore Bible study, just having a moment, and then just like door kicks down, just military bugle right behind your head. This is how John meets Jesus in Revelation 1. It's like, what is going on? Right, this is not a still small voice. This is not Jesus bouncing a baby on his lap. That's not what this is. God has shown up. Do you see that? That's, that's, the, that's the announcement. Just so you know, John, God's here. He shows up, and, and, and it's not just even like a bugle thing. Like, there's that sound, but he can't quite get it straight. He goes to verse 15, he says his voice was like the roar of many waters, so he can't make up his mind what it is. It's like piercing like a trumpet, but it's, it's like chest shaking, like I'm under Niagara Falls. It's this mix of both. That is how Jesus shows up to John. It isn't cute. It, didn't, it's, it's, it is full volume turned up to 11. Jesus Christ arrives, and it says this. Uh, he, he, the, the voice, whatever it is, says this, write down in a book what you're about to see, send it out to the churches. And so he hears that and he turns around to see what he can see. And when he sees, what he sees back here is the wildest thing you've ever seen. He sees seven golden lampstands, which I don't know how they were arranged, but, but they represent the seven churches that he's about to write to. And in the middle of the seven golden lampstands, it says there is someone standing there like a son of man. Now, that might not mean anything to you. Uh, or maybe it just means that John is saying, well, this, you know, he had facial hair and he had a strong jawline. He was talking about a guy. This is not, but let me just be clear. This is not just John's way to say, hey, it was a dude and not a lady. If you were a, uh, if you were a Jew and you heard that, you would know exactly what he's referencing. John was uh, referencing 
Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 and 14, where, uh, where Daniel has a vision uh, of uh, this heavenly scene, and he sees someone that he says looks like a son of man. And the scene in Daniel chapter seven is wild. This son of man is coming on the clouds of heaven. By the way, the only person who did that in the Bible uh, at any point, that was God. And here we have this son of man, someone who looks like a son of man coming to the ancient of days, God. And he gets there, and then the Ancient of Days gives to him a kingdom and dominion and all power and authority. He gives to him all the nations so that they would worship and serve him forever and ever. That's the scene in Daniel chapter 7. And what John is saying is that thing that I've been reading about my whole life as a child up until adulthood, that thing that I'm seeing, I'm seeing that when I turn around. The sound I heard when I turned around to see, I saw the Son of Man, Daniel 7, Son of Man, before me. And that scene, he said, was one like a Son of Man clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest, and the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Like, that's so weird. Why are you emphasizing that he looked old? Like, like, man, it's been a while since the resurrection. Jesus hadn't kept it together, man. He just kind of let himself go. He's kind of aging, you know. Is that what he's saying? That is not what he's saying. Hear me out. When we think agedness in our culture, that's typically anathema to us, right? That's the plague. That's the last thing we want. We're going to tighten up everything we can to never look that way. Just all sorts of colors going in here so it never goes gray. But in the ancient world, gray hair was a sign of honor. It was a sign you made it. You got to live a long life, and long life typically was connected with things like you had honored God in such a way with your wisdom and righteousness that he was pleased to keep you alive that long. In fact, that's exactly what Proverbs 16 says. In Proverbs 16, 31, it says, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. So righteousness is, is somehow for the ancients tied to this idea of long life and gray hair. And when John looks at this guy, he doesn't just see gray hair, he sees white hair, like super gray, right? Like, like gray just cranked all the way up. And it's, it's, it's like wool white, it's snow white, he says. And what is he saying? It's an it's a image of what? Hey, you wanna talk righteousness? Here is the most righteous. There's no... If, if gray is a crown, this is the biggest crown. You, wisdom, this is the most wise one that you are looking at right now. His hair is like a crown on his head. His eyes were a flame of fire, it says. His feet are like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. There is no way John isn't having a coronary at this point. He's losing his mind. There's no way you could see this and just not be losing your mind. And then he says this in verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Can I ask you a question? How big you got to be to hold stars in your hand? You think when John heard the voice and he turned around, I'm just, we're just speculating. You think when he turned around and he heard that voice, he looked down and there was a three foot tall Jesus right there. And just picking him up. Hey man, it's good to see you. No. As speculation, but my guess is John's looking up. John's looking up when he's seeing this. I don't know what it means to hold the stars in your hand, but I think the impression is the sight was large. He has seven stars spiraling around in his hand right here, and then it says he has a sword coming out of his mouth, 
a sword, a, a sharp two-edged sword. This is a, a, a visual of what the Bible calls the word of God. Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews 4.12. It says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So what's John seeing when he's seeing this? He's seeing this, that the words that come out of Jesus Christ's mouth have all authority and power. They have the power of life and death in them. And the only way to describe that in a picture is to have a sword coming out of his mouth. So that's what John gets to see when he turns around. What a terrifying vision this is, right? Jesus has all authority. His words cut, they pierce, they change things. They sort out bone and marrow, soul and spirit. Is the word of God coming out of his mouth. And his face, he says, it was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, he could have said his face was like the sun. That would have gotten the point across. His face was really bright. If you look at the sun, it's really bright. But he didn't. He kept going. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. Right? So, this, so whatever you think of the sun, think of it brighter, is what he said. There was not a, it wasn't a cloudy day around Jesus' face. This was a full on just portrayal of utter glory in such a way that there is no way John looking at him could have really looked at him. Because you can't stare at the sun in full, at full brightness. You can't do it. You kind of got to look off to the side and go, hey, look at that sun over there. That's what he's seeing right here. All of those things, this grand seven stars, sword, bright face, eyes like fire. John sees this in verse 17. And when I saw him, John writes, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, is that your Jesus? Think about the way we talk about Jesus. Think about how you talk about Jesus. Think about how we reference him. Think about our pop culture, how we engage with him. I remember when, when I was in college, uh, the popular shirt was Jesus is my homeboy, right? Remember that? Just like dude bro Jesus hanging out there holding like Jesus my own boy, right? Or like you can see it sometimes <clears throat> in uh, bumper stickers. You'll see people driving, they got a bumper sticker on, like God is my co-pilot, right? Like Jesus is just like your, your, your frat guy buddy from college and you, when you get in hijinks, like Jesus comes to get you out of it. Like, oh Jesus, just I got another, you know, jam again. Jesus my bro, Jesus got me out of it, right? Is that what, is that what he's like? Is that... Is that how we street? Hey, newsflash for us. Jesus is not your homeboy. He's not. How dare we? If you saw the Lord Jesus Christ in all his exposed glory, you would fall down on your face right now like John, weeping like a baby and confused whether you were alive or dead. He is, he is not some guy that we appropriate into our lives. And he may grant you permission to be his friend. And praise be to God, he does. Thank you, Jesus, for that. But make no mistake, let me be clear. You have not been befriended by a tabby cat. He is a lion. I have never bent my life around my cat. But I would if there was a lion in my living room. That's why when C.S. Lewis is writing the Chronicles of Narnia, the, the best imagery that he can use to grope and, and describe how I can simultaneously be with this guy and yet he feel terrifying at the same time is Aslan. 
Why does this matter? Why? John, John could have just said, I was in the presence of the Lord on the Lord's day, uh, caught up in the spirit. Jesus spoke to me, and he told me, write down what you see and send it to the churches. He could have said that. Always ask the question, why is this there? Why is that there in the Bible? Why would he belabor the point? Why are we putting so much emphasis on this this morning? Why, why is it important to see Jesus like this? Answer, because either God will be big in your life or everything else will. And those are your only two options. Either God will be glorious in your life or everything else will take that place and have weight. If God is not glorious to you, you will need so much from other people. You will need, need their approval to make it. You will need to be liked. You will do all you can to avoid their criticism and to find their praise. Yes, you will. You will. Because the weightiest voice in your life is not God's voice. It's their voice. And we bend to the weightiest things. We always have. It's what people do. And if he's not, you will bend to someone else. What is a vision of God's glory meant to do? What is it meant to do? It is meant to free us from needing to be seen so we can live so that others would see him. That's what a vision of God's glory is meant to do. And all I want to do for the rest of the time is I just want to, I want to apply this in our lives. In, in what way will this change us? Let's, let's talk about evangelism for a moment. How will you ever overcome your fear in evangelism? Can we just be honest? It, it feels really scary sometimes to be like, I'm going to say the most offensive things in the world to this person right here and expect that to go well. That's a, that's a scary thing. How are, how are you going to overcome your fear and actually share the gospel with your one? Right, we've been doing this Who's Your One campaign around here for like a year, right? We're, we're asking God to identify who is that one person that is in our life that, that needs Jesus, that we can be the, the presentation of the gospel to them, and we start praying for them, and then we get a chance, and we step in, we share the gospel with them, right? We, we, we write their name down, we put them in baskets up here. There are some of you in this room, we've been doing this for over a year, and you still haven't done it because you're terrified. You're, t you're just like, oh, it's never the right time. Oh, it's not the right time. But what you really mean is, I'm scared of losing face. I don't want to be embarrassed. I want to keep this relationship. How are you ever going to overcome your fear except by this truth? Could it be that the way that you can be freed up to be an evangelist in this world is by embracing Paul's words in 2 Timothy 4? Do you remember Paul when he's writing to uh, his disciple Timothy? And uh, it's his last letter uh, to his disciple, and he is communicating to him the importance of this man sharing the gospel, doing the work of the evangelist. And do you know what he says to him in, in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2? Listen to how he frames his argument to Timothy. I charge you 
in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. What's Paul doing? He's saying, Timothy, you preach the word because God matters. Not, you preach the word. Look at Paul's logic. His logic for evangelism does not start with people. His logic for evangelism doesn't start with man and what they need. It starts with God and what he deserves. Do you do your evangelism like that? What I'm about to say is probably going to uh, hit you sideways. It may, it may even offend you. But what if our burden for reaching the lost didn't start with our love for people, but it started with a burden for the glory and significance and value and importance of God to be seen and treasured? What if it started there? What if the, what if the real horror to us was not that people were dying and going to hell in their sins, but the real horror to us was that day after day after day after day, our glorious God is being robbed of the glory due his name by billions of people. I'm not saying we shouldn't love people. That should drive us. But could our first driver please be God's being robbed of his fame? He's worthy. So I'm going to talk to you because I want him to be known and lauded and celebrated and glorified. And he's not in your life. And you need to know him because he's that precious. He's that valuable. And I don't want you to waste another second on this earth taking up this space without giving him the proper glory due his name. That's how a Christian thinks and talks about evangelism. That's not how, that's not how we typically like to think about it, but it is biblical. God, could we say, could we say with, with the psalmist in Psalm 119, 136, rivers of water, tears, pour from my eyes because men do not keep your law. Do you hear his logic? My heart's broken because you're not getting what you deserve. Oh, for a big view of God, it will change you. It'll change how you preach and talk to your neighbor and your friends. What about just the general category of fear of man, just generally speaking? How will you ever get over what people think about you? I mean, gosh, can we be honest? We're so crippled by this, aren't we? Like how many decisions we make and how many posts and how many comments and how many things we hold back or share are done simply to make sure others think well of me. Can we just raise our hand and say, that is what I do. How, how will you ever be free from this if you don't have a vision of the glory of God? Is seeing God as more glorious than your little Life. Could we say with Jesus in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. He's talking about persecution. He's talking about the trepidation we would have as Christians being bold in this life because of what would come on us. But here's the reality. It applies to anything. It, it applies to any time you need approval from other people to be okay. And look at what he's saying. He's like, don't fear them. He says, don't fear them because they... They can only kill your body. They can't do anything for your soul. He says, rather, 
Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, is he saying, hey, look, you can lose your salvation if you do something? That's not the point of what he's saying. What he's saying is, who has the gravitas in your life? Whose voice is the loudest? Who has your sympathies? Does Jesus Christ have your primary sympathies, or do they? When we say the fear of God, we're saying his voice, his presence, his everything is louder than any other thing. That's what we're saying when we say, I fear God. He's saying, don't fear men. You fear the one who has weight and substance to him. Big view of God. I answer to God. This is the one that, um, I'm not lying when I say this, I come to this verse uh, definitely weekly, sometimes daily, uh, and I'm constantly undone by it. I'm, I'm so scared by it, to be honest with you. It has to do with faith, the ability to believe in Jesus, like the, the, the entryway to this whole thing, just believing in Jesus. Understanding the glory of God determines whether or not you can do that. Did you know the Bible teaches that? Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in John 6, 44, and he says this sentence, and I just, I'm so shaken by it. How can you believe? That word is ability, can. How can you believe? when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Say it positively as, as a statement, not a question. You cannot believe when you are looking to others for glory. You can't. Do you struggle to believe in God in here? This room's pretty full and We've got folks watching at home. Uh, some of you uh, in, in this room might not even be Christians. You might be like volitionally, no, I, I'm not. I'm here because I'm curious. Do, do you struggle? Like, is, is there a hurdle for you to, to, to just jump full in and, and grab onto the cross and trust Jesus? Can I submit to you what it might be that's keeping you back? It might not be what you think. Could it possibly be that you can't put your faith in God because you want to be God instead? That's what the text is saying. I'll read you oh, uh, another quote from the Tozer book. This is in the same chapter as that prayer I read earlier. Listen to this. He's commenting on John 5. Could it be that those intellectual difficulties which men blame for their inability to believe are but smoke screens to conceal the real cause that lies behind them? Was it this greedy desire for honor from man that made men into Pharisees and Pharisees into deicides or God killers? Is this the secret back of religious self-righteousness and empty worship? I believe it may be. The whole course of the life is upset by failure to put God where he belongs. We exalt ourselves instead of God and the curse follows. I don't want the curse for us. I don't want this for us, church. I don't want this for me. I don't, I don't want, I want God to be glorious to you. 
that when you think about him, he isn't some cool addition to your life like an extra little bonus feature that gets you going, but he is so pronounced, so substantive, that there is only space for him in your affections. I, I want this for you, that, so that you can see him, and in seeing him, you'll be free, and in being free, you'll stop caring so much about your little self. We're so small. But we think we're so big. You'll be free to finally live for the good of other people. Can you imagine not needing something from a person, but wanting something for a person? That's what this frees you to do. I don't have to need something from you. I can want something for you and live for that. This will free you to actually live a changed life. We'll be formed. That's the point. You will be formed into God's image as he grows in weight in your life. Let's pray. And as we pray, I'm going to read a prayer. This is the prayer that the sentence that wrecked me is found in, in the book. And I'm gonna pray it over myself and over you. And you just agree with me as I pray. Oh God, be thou exalted over my possessions. Nothing of earth's treasures shall seem dear unto me if only thou art glorified in my life. Be thou exalted over my friendships. I am determined that thou shalt be above all, though I must stand deserted and alone in the midst of the earth. Be thou exalted above my comforts, though it mean the loss of bodily comforts and carrying of heavy crosses. I shall keep my vow made this day before thee. Be thou exalted over my reputation. Make me ambitious to please thee, even if as a result I must sink into obscurity and my name be forgotten as a dream. Arise, O Lord, into thy proper place of honor, above my ambitions, above my likes and dislikes, above my family, my health, and even my life itself. Let me sink that thou mayest rise above Ride forth upon me as thou didst ride into Jerusalem, mounted upon the humble little beast, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And let me hear the children cry to thee, Hosanna in the highest.